The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. So after our holiday break, we are back for the rest of season three, here to bring you more great geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a production of the Society of Economic Geologists. We're sponsored by ALS Goldspot Discoveries, a technology company that believes in the power of combining expert geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. They work across commodity types, deposit styles, and data sources to solve some of the top problems in mining and mineral exploration. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in Petroscience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. In our most recent episode, Sam Weatherly explored the weird and wonderful world of carbonatites, host to rare earth elements and other critical metals. Now, we move back into the more familiar territory of the silicate magmatic hydrothermal systems for the first of three episodes covering the entire porphyry to epithermal transition. Today's episode highlights the work of FAMOS, a UK-based research consortium. This multi-institution, interdisciplinary project was conceived by the members of the Mineral Deposit Studies Group in the UK, which is a division of the Geological Society of London. The idea was to bring researchers and industry together to answer some big and deep questions in our understanding of the magmatic hydrothermal processes that lead to the formation of porphyry deposits. It was an ambitious and innovative proposal that resulted in major funding from the UK scientific funding body, NERC. To provide us with the big picture overview of their work, we turn to Jamie Wilkinson from the Natural History Museum in London, England, who leads, or he might say, herds the FAMUS consortium. I spoke to Jamie last August on the conference floor of SEG 2022 in Denver, where he presented some of the ideas and results from the project as it reaches its final stages of the work plan. So we're here to talk about magmatic plumbing systems, I hope, and what the processes are that go on to actually create a fertile porphyry system. But first and foremost, tell us who you are and how did you get at the Natural History Museum doing plumbing? Right. In the, in the basement. So the, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, thanks for the invitation to, to talk to you, man. So my name is Jamie Wilkinson. I'm a research leader at the Natural History Museum. I've been for eight years. And my background has been geochemistry generally. Uh, I guess early on in my career, I've just found that ore deposits were the most interesting place to apply that research trade. From all angles? From, from all like angles, detailed yeah. Detailed scales to big scales? Yeah. Yeah. So earlier on, probably I was more, more focused on more ore deposit scale kind of studies. I did a lot of fluid, fluid chemistry, fluid inclusion work. What did you do on. in your graduate work? My PhD? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was, that was my first real exposure to economic geology at Southampton with Bob Foster. So I wasn't working on ore deposits per se. I was working on Vriskin 
tectonic evolution and fluid flow in the during metamorphism and so on in the southwest England in the Ruskin Belt, looking at fluid evolution through the whole orogenic cycle, which then in, included the final stage of granite emplacement and the hydrothermal systems, obviously tin tungsten mineralization. So that was kind of like part of my story, but it was the the tail end really. It was looking at the whole evolution of a piece of crust through a whole orogenic cycle from a fluid migration, fluid chemistry point of view. But skills and knowledge that's completely applicable to what you're doing now. Yeah. In that yeah. sense, I mean, just yeah. process-wise, moving fluids. Moving fluids. Just, just to create the simplistic view of, the, of it. And, and, yeah, <laughs> and then sort of, yeah, the, the interest in ore deposits then grew and the surrounding students at the time, my friends were all working on kind of more conventional ore deposit type studies, especially right. on gold. And that's where it began. But more recently, I've moved more into the mineral chemistry and, and actually petrology. So I'm a sort of a wannabe petrologist these, oh. these days. <laughs> Bit of a jack of all Does trades. Does anybody do petrology these days? Well, some of the collaborators in a, in a famous project do. <laughs> but yeah, so it's kind of how I've ended up getting into this, this porphyry magmatic space. Right. So tell me about famous. I mean, what a name is that? Famous, yeah. Some, some say <laughs> famous. that one. Some famous. Say famous. Is it famous? I mean, it's got to be well, famous. Yeah, famous. <laughs> yeah, so you have to have an acronym and a logo for any you, of these, you do. these awards. If you're going to so, get... Uh, yeah, you have, to, you have to try and find a project title that yields up a suitable acronym. So from Arc Magmas to Ores or Systems was... How famous came about right from Arc Magnus to Ore Systems, of course. So um, that's how that's how it got its name. It came about through this process of a community idea. So in the UK, the Ore Ore Deposits Research Community is mainly organised through the Mineral Deposit Studies Group. The community has, in recent years, worked together much more effectively at trying to get significant funding rather than as a series of individual kind of institutional groups and been successful. So Famous was a community idea to propose what's called a highlight topic idea to NERC to do something in this porphyry magmatic space and using mineral chemistry to both interpret processes that are going on in that kind of system and how those minerals might record signatures that could be useful for exploration, discriminating fertile environments. What are all the different kinds of research that have gone on in this project? I guess one of the just sort of arguments for why it could deliver some novel findings mm-hmm. was to bring together the petrology community in the UK. So some top petrologists who traditionally haven't worked necessarily much on economic geology problems with the ore deposit community, obviously know a fair bit about porphyries and other kinds of magmatic systems and to bring those two groups together. Plus the sort of third spoke, if you like, was this numerical modelling side to modellers of the physical processes of magma and fluid flow in the crust. So that's through Matt Jackson's group at Imperial. So bringing those three different elements together, ore deposit, geology, mineralogy, experts, the petrologists, and this sort of physical modeling capability are the three sort of components. So which which of the do you do first? Or do you do it all simultaneously? We're all, yeah, all simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, 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 all simultaneously. And then, you know, the project's designed to try and effectively integrate those three things, not do them completely separately, but clearly from the start we tried to devise the program so that they would connect naturally and that people wouldn't just be working on their own specific thing they would have to collaborate with people from the other institutions involved on specific parts of the right. parts of the program so the individual research tasks were designed to, to look at a process element rather so than a discipline element if perfect. you like right. so which, which brings the different people which brings together. different people together yeah. across boundaries so give an example where's the successes or what are you learning I guess maybe the best place to start would be sort of the components of the project. So we're trying to understand how arc magmas evolve 
in a certain way that they become fertile for porphyry mineralization, so predisposed to form a deposit. We're not looking at the deposits themselves, we're mostly looking at the, the processes that lead up to a magma that could make a deposit from the mantle right through into the shallow crustal kind of emplacement. But where do you even start? We're so used to looking at ore deposits and that's the environment we're used to studying. So if you're talking about the plumbing systems, where do you look? Yeah, so it's probably field-based, so it's sort of identifying areas where you can actually interrogate parts of that story directly through right. the rec- rock, rock records. So one of the work package tasks is the rock records. That's actually looking at the evidence right. for various processes. And for example, that would include places where the lower crustal cumulate section might be exposed. So the Ivorya zone has been one area where... Which where zone? The Ivorya zone. Where is that? In, in the Alps. Oh, okay. So that's one place where a lower crustal section, cumulate section is exposed, where you can actually look at what's there. So that's one of the study sites. And then samples from places like the Pakistan sections where the cumulate, but you know, lower crustal cumulates are exposed. Right. So samples from places like that where you can interrogate that deep crustal environment. Right. Observing the crust directly, theoretically considering what might happen, and then experimentally modeling what could happen in an experiment and then extrapolating that into what right. might happen in the crust. So there's sort of different ways of looking at the problem, if you like, and then obviously trying to bring those things together. And are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> where are you in this process? So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of obviously COVID delays in the middle of the project didn't, didn't help, but we're less than a year from the end. So now is the stage where quite a few of the results are coming together and we're starting to integrate them. So it's not very easy, not very easy to connect everything, especially you're not an expert in all those fields, right, which I'm not. Right, no. So, <laughs> yeah. so, um, so you can't take me on a tour from the mantle up through this, um, this plumbing well, system and sort of tell me what happens a, along the way? Sort of half. To half. create my favorite porphyry? Okay. Yeah, I can half do that. I guess the presentation I'm giving here is trying to do that, and it's not really focusing too much on the mantle source melting right. constraints. Which is still hard. I mean, to be honest, that's got to be the most difficult part, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to do. But taking a magma you've generated, so basaltic magma in in the mantle, moving it into the lower crust, there are then several different things that can happen. So one of the ways we framed the proposal was looking at different gates, so looking at specific processes that could influence the pathway that a magma then follows. One of those is... Scenarios, really. Scenarios, yeah. yeah, One of those is what happens in the lower crust to chalcophile elements and whether they get trapped there in sulfide. So that's what we would call a gate, and it might be a negative of gates. So if you take them all out there, there, then you're you're done. So how important is that sulfide trap for preventing porphyry fertility, if you like? Or how do you escape that? How do you get away from that? And there's kind of two possibilities that emerge at the moment. One is based on the argument that essentially most most arc magmas, even if if highly oxidized experimental data shows now that you will sulfide saturate. So escaping that is problematic. And two ways that you might be able to do that. One is that you have a, a very high magma flux and rapid ascent, you may be able to avoid significant sulfide saturation at that Right, at that so if level. you get it out of there really fast. Get it out of there fast, yeah. Right, so how would you get it out of there really fast? Well, just t- a potentially, conduit some, opens, yeah, potentially I mean, a tectonic is... sort of tectonic right. trigger. I mean, there are so the evident the data set that supports that is a central volcan- a southern volcanic zone data set, a whole rock data that shows that most of the, the volcanic products show evidence for sulfide saturation, the evolution path is fractionation. So, with mag- magnesium oxide decreasing the fractionation, you see depletion in copper and you see the decrease in copper silver ratio that's suggesting a sulfide saturating in the lower crust and then the volcanic products that make it up to the top have effectively lost Le- their copper. Right. But there are a couple of places where you don't see that, but you see a significant increase in, in copper and copper-silver ratio with, with differentiation that shows that the, those particular magmas have escaped. They've got away from lower right. crustal death. And as Yaima and Villarica, I think, are two of the volcanoes that do that. And they're also the ones with the highest magma fluxes. 
as, right. as quantified, as quantified from, right. from rapid products. So that's where the idea came that something to do with magma flux and, and maybe rapid migration rapid has right. allowed those to escape significant sulfide saturation and depth. So that's one, one scenario, one possibility. The other is work that Leicester team, Dave Holwell and his team have been working on is looking at what might happen to sulfides in the lower crustal cumulate. And the evidence from the Ivrea zone suggests that they may be in a temperature window. In fact, it may be true for other crustal cumulate sections as well, where the sulfide could be present as a liquid. So the nickel sulfide would be solid, but the, but the copper ISS liquid would remain as liquid. You're just in a certain temperature window where... Just because where, of the temperature, right. So you're in the right, right. temperature window for, for potentially the copper-rich sulfide liquid to remain liquid, and then you have the capability to extract that. So the mechanism for that is, is speculative, whether you carry it as droplets I was going to say, so how, how does it... So well, yeah, we've so talked that, about drobbles yeah. and on the podcast previously. And, exactly. So that's and one how the vapor carry, carries the metal with it, it, and then you, yeah, <laughs> you redissolve it sort of higher up. Yeah. Or you you flux another a, a melt through that and redissolve it, or you know some mechanism for then mobilizing that right. sulfide. So in the rock record evidence, there's evidence from mobilization of this copper sulfide liquid through the accumulator, obviously only over distances of millimeters or centimeters, but it is mobile. So yes. then, so the idea is, you know, can you then extract that and carry it up and to how the, far? Can how you, far? I mean, so well, with the distance, I mean, like that's a fair way as you're trying to carry it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. you have to be able to mobilize that copper-rich liquid all the way up into the shallow crust somehow, if it's a viable scenario. And and perhaps if that happens in some places, but not in others, that's how you explain the sort of you know the rarity of porphyries, if you like. You know, that most of the time, whatever form that chalcophile element budget is being trapped in in the lower crust, some places maybe it's the localized places that you're able to mobilize that. That why those magmas are more more photo fertile. So that's the, that's the lower crustal sulfide trap part. And there's new experimental results that kind of reinforcing and building on previous experiments to, to look at what the stability of the crystallizing phase assemblage would be under different PT conditions in water-saturated basaltic melts. And that's kind of reinforced what the previous studies showed, that if you're in average crustal thickness, 40 kilometers or so thick, you'd be in water-saturated basalt, you'd be crystallizing a sort of plagioclase amphibole type of assemblage. So quite a lot of plagioclase crystallization. And that imparts a certain signature on the magma, which is what we find is not associated with fertile porphyry systems. So plagioclase crystallizing assemblages leads to development of europium anomaly. And, okay. And that, so that's that's kind of the signature. Which you can kind see, of jumping you ahead can a little see bit. In, right, so you can see in what we normally see at yeah. the surface or in... Yeah, yeah. so in, in your porphyry rocks or typical arg rocks would, would have that sort of signature of a plagioclase, potentially amphibole right. fractionation, but plagioclase present assemblage crystallizing and that's not what you want right so what you want is what you find but, if but you... falsification is a good thing yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and that's what you normally just, see a normal right. that's what a normal arc intermediate to felsic rock would have that sort of signature but if you're in a thickened thickened crust for 50 or 60 kilometers then the, the stable phase assemblage then shifts you jump out of plagioclase stability and you'd be in an, an amphibole clinoperoxene plus or minus garnet stability window and because you're fractionating those different phases with different partition right. behavior for trace elements then you have a very different trace element signature in the magma that then passes out of that environment. So thickened crust imparts that particular signature that we then find associated with porphyry systems specifically, which is, this, you know, high strontium yttrium ratio, lack of a negative European anomaly, that type of characteristic or a spoon-shaped rare earth profile. So you've got sort of depletion in the middle. So essentially proposing a scenario or a model which explains those two things we observe at the surface in terms of... Yeah, rare and, earth and that's not a new anomaly. observation, yeah. obviously, but, it, but we're, we're sort of kind of 
reinforcing that understanding that the trace element characteristics that seem to be quite strongly associated with magmas associated right. spatially and temporally associated with porphyry deposits they have that characteristic and you can explain that from the experimental data by the pressure temperature conditions under which fractionation has occurred in the crust so that's kind of like how experimental data is sort of feeding in to the story and then if you move shallower if that's all right right yeah go shallower, shallower. <laughs> yeah no please go shallower because so maybe you, we'll start to understand what's going on <laughs> so moving moving this fractionated magma from a lower crustal environment upwards and then we're starting to i guess in the conventional model it would be building some sort of magma chamber but we we're sort of working on the paradigm that's more increasingly accepted in the petrology literature that you just don't have a liquid rich convecting magma chamber so what ever. we all learned in university or the models that show this big bowl of magma is not actually sitting there. No. So I think it's more widely accepted that it's a more crustal mush zone continuum. It's largely a a crystal rich environment with small melt proportion that's relatively cool. And you're injecting more basic material into it that's potentially progressively fractionating and evolving. But it's never a, a large live Liquid Live liquid reservoir. reservoir here. So that's kind of the framework for some of the physical modeling of magma flow and reactive flow, which is where the process of evolution of the chemistry of the melt and the crystals is not governed by those sort of processes you envisage in a typical magma chamber kind of context. That the migration of melt through this crystal mush is reacting with the crystals that are present, and the evolution of the chemistry is controlled by that process more than Just a traditional. Completely different. I mean, it's yeah. really cool. So that, that's kind of framework for that physical modeling with a bit of chemistry involved in it as well but irrespective in some ways of of how you get there what we're then looking at in the rock record is is the sort of detailed case studies of the plutonic to porphyry evolution of some of the key districts so sort of the jewel in the crown of the case studies would be the Rio Blanco Los Bronces district central Chile the Anglo have given us fantastic access to to sample and build on their existing data sets so we have a quite remarkable temporal record of the evolution of that district in terms of the, the construction of the San Francisco batholith the precursor to the porphyry systems the onset of sub-economic porphyry emplacement towards the end of that batholith construction and then into the main porphyry window at the end of that construction cycle. And and what's that time? So yeah, so that time span is about 10 million years. And that's all being intruded into the precursor's thick volcanic package of the Abanico and Farallonis formations. We also have a volcanic record, quite detailed volcanic record through the volcanic stratigraphy that's leading up to the point at which you start to construct the bath. The batholith then starts to be emplaced within that. And that's quite a common sequence that we see in in major porphyry districts, that precursor sort of long-term surface volcanism, building up a thick volcanic package that then evolves towards a plutonic emplacement phase that's initially batholithic at 5 to 10 kilometers depth potentially that then evolves into the porphyry phase potentially through shallowing again you know you're maybe you know potentially shallower depths you're exhuming it once you're starting to put to emplace the porphyries so that other element of uplift happening and erosion presumably such that you're yeah, yeah. So, a lot of, there are a lot of processes in this. Yeah, physical. Not that that's surprising. <laughs> so, we've, so we've got this long-term record there, and and in the Cave Echo District, another district where we've been doing that, and some work also in the Fortuna Complex in Chuki. So there's this big districts where there's a long-term batholith construction stage. That sort of same time scale, actually, about 10 million years. And then several million years window in which multiple porphyry phases then come in. And we're looking at you know, the whole geochemistry evolution in that and the mineral chemistry, tracking what the processes are, that what changes when you go from that 
unfertile batholithic phase to the, the fertile porphyry phase. And you see that shift from the plagioclase fractionated signature, which is suggesting that the batholith phase is being sourced from magmas that have crystallized and fractionated, maybe relatively dry, but in a sort of mid-crustal, a lower pressure condition where plagioclase is, is stable. And that shifts. So when you go into the porphyry fertile stage, you then get the signature of deeper fractionation, deeper fractionation. With, the, with the anthropobol, higher proxy garnet, and, and largely lack of plagioclase. So it's, the interpretation is that's representing a deepening source of the magma that's feeding the fertile porphyry stage. With still some conduit or way it got there. Yeah, and it may be the same, same conduits, right. but, but perhaps right. it's coming from deeper. Maybe it's yeah, structurally controlled, or maybe it's coming up faster, but it's being sourced from greater depth at that point. And obviously that's associated with some changes right, <laughs> that, and that, that make that more fertile right. magma. And that, that's the big question and still, is big, what those changes question. are and how we can observe them or recognize yeah. that that's what's happened. So there's a, so the record of whole rock and the zircon chemistry can track that switch from normal arc magmatism to the fertile state, representing this deepening locus of fractionation and evolution. But tells you that the system's kind of gone the right direction, but not the details of what the importance of that is. So we're also looking at other minerals like apatite's been particularly useful because that's the sort of igneous apatite can trace the volatile record of the right. melt. And what that suggests from, from studies in Rio Blanca Los Bronces and also Caveco to some extent and previous work from, from one of my PhD students, Emily Brugin, uh, La Granja in Peru, shows that there's a change in the sulfur content and the chlorine content of the appetites. So tracking melt composition in terms of those volatiles, but also potentially oxidation state could be involved. Right. But it, it's an evolution from lower chlorine in the baffler stage to higher chlorine contents in the appetites, which may be re- reflecting an increase in chlorine content of the melt as you move into the porphyry fertile stage and increase in sulfur content too, which in appetite is, is either a function of melt sulfur content increasing or increased oxidation state of the melt, which increases the partitioning of sulfur into the appetite or both. So separating those is, is tricky, but there is a clear change into the appetites that are associated with a porphyry phase. But we only see that record, importantly, in appetite inclusions in zircon, which has been quite a focus of our, our work. The reason being that when you're in a porphyry environment, it's all, all rocks are all altered. See the all post... Alteration ig- is post- such a problem. It just gets <laughs> post- in the way of everything. Post-igneous <laughs> hydrothermal overprinting, which, which we've got good evidence, is, is just totally modifying any of the matrix microphenocryst appetite chemistry right. through diffusional recalibration. So you, so you look for appetite inclusions that are basically in a fortress, a zircon in a fortress, fortress yeah. That, yeah. that hasn't been cracked. So the yep. pristine igneous record is in those inclusions, whereas, and maybe potentially appetite inclusions in other, in other resistant igneous phases, or at least don't, that don't show evidence right. for alteration. But the matrix ones surrounded by sericitic alteration are, are all modified. They, they, they evolve in their composition towards pure hydrothermal appetites, which you, which you get frequently in potassic stage veins, sericitic stage veins, propylitic stage veins, you get ap- hydrothermal appetites. And the igneous ones get modified towards those sort of compositions, in fact. So if you want to understand the igneous record and the importance of the igneous volatile story for fertility, we think it's in those appetite inclusions, basically. Which are difficult to analyze. They're not very big. I mean, they're they're abundant. So we're talking from the scales. We're talking, you know, magma's moving over tens of kilometers or, yeah, large distances down to the scale of an appetite inclusion in a zircon. Yeah, they're they're actually (laughs) five microns wide. Right. And what what tools are you using for that? So, I mean, it's using a microprobe with a fine beam. And there's difficulties in analyzing halogen, especially fluorine contents and appetite at the best of times. So you have to be careful about how you you do that. And with laser ablation. But again, with with an optical. With a finer beam, beam, because I think of laser ablation as being a bigger. Yeah, normally we'd use a 35 micron spot or bigger, but 
for the appetite inclusions we've been doing with a five five micron spot. So we have to wow. do quite a lot of development to, to show analytically the quality of the data is good, which which we've done and which we've shown right. that we can do it. Yeah, because you're not actually detecting that much either. If it's a five micron, there's not much material there. No, so the detection, <laughs> the detection limits aren't aren't as good as the bigger spot, obviously, but you can measure quite a you know range of trace elements. Yeah, you yeah. get a full rare earth pattern, for example. So that's been yeah, that's been quite important sort of technological development. Shed some light on on that sort of volatile record. Mm-hmm. I guess one thing, the other last thing I should probably mention from an industry point of view is that we're not doing this all just for the science and the understanding. We part of our delivery and, and the last work package of the research is to translate the understanding of what makes certain magmas fertile into tools that can be used in exploration to improve exploration success. So particularly through the, the avenue of certain minerals that record some of the key signatures of the process right. so that we can discriminate magmas that have gone through this fertile pathway from ones that haven't. So maybe minerals are then reworked into stream sediments and so on, not just sampling rocks. So we're, we're, you know, we're doing that and we're doing that using some you know, sort of approaches, conventional things, but also using machine learning. And you can use a basket of elements in a multivariate sense and have a much more powerful and quantifiable predictive tool. So we've got some machine learning algorithms for whole rock that can distinguish porphyry associated signatures to a probability of, you know, 90% likelihood of being correctly identifying a rock that's associated right. with a fertile porphyry system. And then we can do the same thing for zircon chemistry. Chetan and Nathawani, my students, done some combining of appetite and zircon signals to sort of bring those two things right. together because they, they tell right. us different things. The appetite's more telling us about the volatile story that a system that has the right kind of ingredients and the zircon's telling us more about that called district scale so it brings two different aspects of the right. fertility story yeah. together when you're combining different minerals. And we've also done some image convolutional ne- neural network stuff. Can you recognize texturally zircons that have the right characteristics associated with the fertile stage of evolution of a district? So that they tend to be more euhedral and more strongly zoned in cathode luminescence. So again, Chetan's developed a neural network approach that can actually recognize those automatically with quite a high degree of certainty. So that's kind of an interesting, it's only just starting that sort of work, but it shows that not just geochemically, but in terms of textural. physical physical textural characteristics right. of the mineral. Yeah. So I think there's some, yeah. there are some tools emerging that you know would be hopefully quite... Would be interesting, yeah. Quite useful, but also you know quantifiable in that you can know, make put a yeah. proper probability on the, the likelihood that they're they're giving you the right, right. answer. Right, it's just massive actually thinking about bringing all these parts together. Yeah, so there's there's more work to, to be done. That's cohesive. Yeah, yeah, to link some of the things, especially sort of physical modeling. A huge amount of work had to be done just to develop the code to model the magma right. flow and this reactive transport in three dimensions, which is what's being done. It hasn't been done before, yeah. so it's something's being done that hasn't been done yeah. before anywhere. And it's now the first simulations are really only just starting to come out of that work. I mean, I think so many of us, and particularly out here in the exploration world, we're not used to thinking about those kinds of models. That <laughs> it's a whole different world. Yeah. And they're very illuminating. I and mean, already the initial things have shown some very unusual behavior that are not intuitive that you wouldn't imagine could happen. But physically, these models seem to show that you can you can do some strange things. It really is kind of mind boggling how many things you cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, one aspect of the research is that how much fun it's been to work with people from different disciplines so this across the boundaries and being interdisciplinary i think everyone in the consortium has found interesting and inspiring and, and very enjoyable to, to be outside their normal comfort space and be talking to people who come from a different perspective and it's worked really well i mean it could it could have gone completely wrong and nobody right. nobody worked together but i think everyone's been really happy in the consortium to be right. sort of and integrated do you think the petrologists are learning things from the ore deposit people or is it more the other way around <laughs> well it feels like me to me it's more the other way around right. being a wannabe petrologist than i am right 
Right. But I think you can be quite narrow in your view of your subject if that's what you always work on and that other people have other information and knowledge that makes you look at your data in perhaps in a different light. You know, it might be might be considering more what the effects of weathering or alteration might be that you previously just ignored or that not all magmas necessarily go through the sort of conventional path that you might typically envisage that they go through, that actually some quite different things can happen. Elena Melikova is an experimental petrologist at Oxford University, one of the many researchers within the FAMUS consortium. We talked to her about what experimental petrology offers to the understanding of earth processes and ore formation, the value of collaboration, and the connection for her between coal and biscuits. My name is Elena Melikova. I'm an experimental petrologist in the Earth Science Department, University of Oxford. I'm from Siberia, and I think as a child I've been always surrounded by amazing geology, but as a child I was not interested in geology. I was near big gold mines, oil and gas mines. I was raised in a small town, which was full of geologists. And my parents, civil engineers who worked around geology community. As a child, I saw amazing kimberlite pipes in Mirny. And it was all fascinated, but I was not interested in geology as a child. But I think my love for love work was probably from childhood, my Grandmother was a lab technician in coal factory, and they had a day shift and night shift. And when they had night shifts, sometimes she took me as a child there, and they had to test a coal for moisture and ash. And they had beautiful, very well calibrated, which is now you know, ovens, and beautiful balances with lots of different weights in the small boxes with the tweezers for the smallest weights. And they had to burn it and then wait. And I was allowed to play with that because it at night shifts, usually wasn't senior people there. But what they also done there, because the ovens were excellent, as I know now, they did bake biscuits there, and biscuits were absolutely amazing because the temperature in these ovens was so good. So biscuits and lab work is a good combination. Exactly. And I still, um, I think, remember the smell of mixture of burning coal and, and the biscuits. <laughs> and I did my undergraduate degree at Irkutsk State University, and then I started my PhD also at Institute of Earth Crust, but I was doing something completely different. I was doing um, equation of states of minerals, thermodynamic calculations. And two years into my PhD, I went for a conference in Zurich and I saw a PhD position in experimental petrology open there uh, with leading supervisor, Mark Schmidt. I was not interested. I was happy. But my Zen advisor from Russia, he said, it's a great opportunity. You have to apply. And I said, I don't have any igneous petrology background, leave alone experimental petrology. And also my English was very bad. My German did not exist. (laughs) But my Russian supervisor then said, you have to. And he joked, he said, if you don't apply, I will fire you. So (laughs) he was persistent and I'm very grateful to him now. So and I applied, so I was at the conference in April. I applied in May, end of August, I was in Zurich. Wow. (laughs) And starting, so dropping my PhD in Russia and starting my PhD in ETH Zurich under supervision of Mark Schmidt and Peter Ulmer. So as I said, my English wasn't very good and Max was unbelievably patient and he and Peter showed me the magic of experimental petrology and I think I fall in love with that and this this is where it's all started. Right, right. Yeah, that's some kind of mentorship, sponsorship to be told that you'll be fired if you don't apply. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I 
was grateful. And I think at that time, I didn't understand how lucky I was to end up at ETH Zurich and be supervised by two leading experimental petrologists and learning from them. I think only later I appreciated my luck. That's amazing. So so now you're at Oxford and you are running labs and facilities, but also doing your own research. So how does that work in your daily life? I'm always impressed by people who have those dual roles. I think it really depends. So I don't find it difficult because we have an amazing group here. And I have a very supportive mentor here, Bernie Wood, who is by my side all the time for any help I need. Our lab is growing now. We have new equipment three piston cylinders, we have multi-anvil, we have several one-atmosphere furnaces, we have cold seals, and we are updating currently. So with all of our equipment, we can carry experiments from anything from low crust now to the deep mantle. And because our group is quite diverse, we're looking for everything in crustal processes, down mantle processes, and early planetary formation. And I think because the group is very engaged and a manageable size, we're about 12 people now. Uh, there are challenges but generally I don't find it's very difficult because we also have here an amazing workshop and club cannot exist without a good workshop and they fix things, change parts to fix. Uh, we could be quite demanding. We want to do some new sort of experiments. We need to build new assemblies. Recently, we built pressure controllers for piston cylinders. We needed suddenly extra piston cylinder because we are growing and they're always very responsive and it's very important. And because I have such a great group of people around me, I don't, I don't find it's difficult. <laughs> so you might need to actually define what is an experimental petrologist. Wow, it's very interesting. I didn't think about it. Experimental petrologist, I think I can describe it. We're trying to recreate planetary processes in a little capsule. We put this capsule under pressure, temperature, different oxidation states, and see what happens. That's a good description. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as close as you can get to imagining or seeing what might happen in places that we'll never see. Exactly. So we can look in inside of the Earth using the experiments. So experimental petrology also quite a broad field. There is a purely theoretical experimental petrology, which is probably in the border with material science. Right. So what I do is close to, to the nature. I combine fieldwork with experiments and a lot recently with geophysics, trying to link everything together trying to reproduce what is happening in real world. I want to know how you found first trying to interact and do research with economic geologists. So you became part of the FAMOS project, which is multi-institutional, multidisciplinary. Did you find it interesting to engage with economic geologists? How to communicate? Actually, my undergraduate degree is in exploration geology. Ah, so you, you, you go way back. I don't think many people know. I didn't know. I, I didn't have know. not done, <laughs> but I have not done anything since I finished my undergraduate. So being involved in farmers was actually quite exciting. And it was very interesting experience to work inside of the project with actually had collaboration with industry. It was interesting and challenging. I think we just had a last meeting before Christmas of farmers. And I think it was super exciting. In my opinion, the project was very successful in spite of the COVID pandemic in the middle of that. And we learned a lot. 
but it also was clear that maybe we have the same aim with industry, but how we get to this aim is very different. So as a scientist, we're more interested in the process which is leading to mineralization. We're trying to understand how it happens. And with industry, I felt that they wanted the magic ratio which will tell them, dig here and you'll find the ore. Two positive things the industry people brought. It's a samples, access to the amazing data sets. And unintentionally, they did keep us focused. Because as scientists, we sometimes... Mm. going in lots of different direction. And because industry people were there, we and we wanted that interaction. We were trying to stay a bit more focused than we usually would be. Yeah. And I think also, so it was, as you said, quite an interdisciplinary, multi-institutional project. We had a lot of interesting discussions, which led to new discoveries and better understanding of the porphyry uh, systems. Yeah. So I think we've kind of merged into my next question, which was, you know, what were the benefits or the challenges of working in that kind of group? (laughs) Yes, I I think that was also a big benefit being in such a big project with the industry, because just think other side and the arguments, it's helped you to strengthen your theory and develop your experimental setups and what would you like to do next and what would you like to test? Exactly. So did they bring anything to industry that caused you to think differently or illuminated process for you that you might not have thought of? Actually, it did because early on in the project, it was suggested that one of the magic ratios, which I mentioned, it's a strontium versus yttrium, indicates that porphyry magmas have to be very wet because this ratio indicates that plagioclase need to be suppressed and amphibole need to be dominant phase to move this ratio. So this is kind of drove my part of the FAMAS project. And I did experiments on very wet magmas and showed that actually, yes, magmas probably wet, but they don't explain this ratio because even in very wet magmas, it's very difficult to eliminate larger clays from crystallizing. So we need to look at other ways to explain why this ratio is very high in porphyry deposits what they're actually showing. So we know what it's not showing anymore, but we don't know what it is showing. We have some ideas, but we need to test that. Yes, <laughs> but I'm just, so you might not need to agree, but this this is what initiates the project. You're starting to test and try to understand. That was actually something which drove design of my experiments. And I was trying to understand how these two elements partition what they control by, and the experiments were built around that. And then we tried to compare the experimental melts to porphyry magmas, and we showed that experimental melts and what they what this ratio was proposing looks nothing like porphyry magmas. So this is not the answer. Right. So the process of forming these magmas is different. different. So it's useful, even if you disagree. That's it's very useful. interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. So how long do your experiments normally run? Oh, it depends. Yeah. It depends what you look in. It depends at the temperature and it depends if you're working with wet system and dry system. Right. Because if you work in a wet system, the experiments are very usually shorter because kinetic is faster. If you work in a dry system with a very low temperature, kinetics is very slow. I have a PhD student who just was doing experiments on natural dry scoring. Her experiments were 
a week long. Right. Sometimes experiments take a month. But if it's wet system, very hot system, the experiments are, could be just a few hours. Right. Yeah. But for some project, one successful experiment is already a success. That's true. So, so anything else about the FAMAS experience that stood out for you that, that we should talk about or the work that you did? So I find working in consortiums like FAMAS is fascinating. And I learned a lot because I was involved in the periphery of a big consortium grant called Vola, uh, Volatiles Cycling in Las Antilles. And Las Antilles, it's magmatic system, which I've been working for the last 15 years. So it's why I was involved. Mm-hmm. So as FAMAS, it was interdisciplinary. So lots of geophysics there. So I, I would put two parallels between them because when you put, even within geology, if you put people from different perspective from geophysics, structure geologists, it, it's very interesting. You learn and you understand the nat- natural processes much better. I think that it was a great experience. And also you building collaboration, you building link with different people, you becoming, I think, more open-minded and you question not someone ideas but you question also your own ideas because it not doesn't mean that you're always right and for me it's always beneficial to work with people who do a lot of field work structured geologists field geologists and geophysicists because it helps me to constrain my experiments right. and make them closer to to nature that's a vital message we talk so much about how field work is important but we don't talk about how you coordinate people that do the work that you do, which is also vital with that field or structure, all of those other things. And these kinds of situations where you're interacting with, with other people, essentially in teams or a big consortium, that's, you can do it. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. I think that is very interesting mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. of learning from other people. You also get to go to some cool places. That picture of you at the volcano is in the, next to the magma. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I've been very lucky. I had, as I said, I've been working on Les Antilles for the last 15 years, and I had three field campaigns there, and we're planning another one this March because of um, recent eruption on St. Vincent. Mm. But I think the most memorable for me, it would be field trip to New Hebrides, Vanuatu. Oh. We had to sail between the islands because it was the only way to go, and being in such remote not very well studied, was very, very interesting. Not not only geologically, but also culturally, because it's right. still tribal people and the way they live and the way they interact between each other. Yeah. And yeah, it was... Yeah. Lest anyone think you're only in the lab, you know, still eating biscuits no. and, and burning coal. <laughs> no, it's why probably I enjoy consortium because I do like nature inspires you and it's very easy to carry away from from the reality in the lab space i think sometimes even experimental petrologists need to go on the field and and check what is going on in the real world excellent so i think the final question was what can experimental petrology offer to support or constrain porphyry ore deposit models so we've talked around that a bit and i think it just maybe in your words like to hear what you think it offers to the actual porphyry deposit model so in the field we can see their final stage if we talk about porphyry deposit you see the porphyry deposit and this is it it's a snapshot how it happened why it happened in this particular place, as you know very well yourself, it's not 
everywhere. So it's only in particular places and why it is in that places and what the ingredients needed to create mineralization. This is where experimental petrology can help. We can test the processes. We can test is the biggest role of this a thick crust? Is it remelting? Is it a wet magmas, as we talked earlier? or some any other ingredients, and usually it's a combination of several. And this is where experimental petrology comes. Right. So anchor us, constrain us. I think we we can help to try to understand the process which led to the mineralization, I right. think. But we cannot do it without connecting it to the field, to the real rocks, to the geophysics, to the tectonic people. Right. It's a combination process. And I think when we design experiments, we try to keep everything in mind. It's not always possible, but we try to come as close as possible to the nature and to replicate the processes in nature. You may be wondering at this point why industry partners support this fundamental research. Next up, we talk to Christian Eilenfeld from Anglo-American for his take on the value of this research from an industry perspective. Okay. Yeah. Well, hi, hi, Anne, and and thanks very much for having me on. It's it's a real pleasure and and privilege. So I'm I'm Christian Eilenfeld. Um, I'm principal mineral system geoscientist for basin hosted mineral systems at Anglo American. I'm based in London in the UK. I've been in my current role for about two years, and prior to this, most of my career has been in in geochemistry, including six years as as principal geochemist at Anglo American. And during that time as principal geochemist, I was driving and supervising much of of Anglo's um, geochemistry-related research, including the FAMIS project. So this is where my involvement in the FAMIS project came from. I've been with Anglo-American for for 15 years now, um, so it's quite a long time, and in various uh, geochemistry-related roles, as I I said. And so while my current focus is on sediment-hosted systems, I've worked extensively on on magmatic nickel sulfide systems, a lot on porphyry systems over the years, globally. So I've been really fortunate with Anglo having had the opportunity to work with amazing people and on some amazing projects around the globe. So before joining Anglo-American in, in 2007, I spent a few years in research, actually on an industry-funded and initiated research project at Monash University in, in Melbourne on the fertility of magmatic nickel sulfide systems. So, so this is how I first got involved with Anglo-American, and Anglo then made me an offer, and I joined them, and yeah. Yeah, so you, so you made that jump from academia to industry, more or less. Like, you could have yeah. you could have picked either path. You could probably go back again. Again, we know people who've done that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know that the great thing about my roles with Anglo over the years have been that I've always been involved in research. And that's a part of my job that I've really enjoyed very much, mm. working with students, supervising them, generating ideas for new projects, directing the people. So that's a part that I've, I've enjoyed. And as you say, I could imagine going back at some point in time. But for now, I'm, I'm very happy in the industry. Yeah. And I'm not sure broadly that people are aware how much of that happens, particularly in the larger companies. There are people like you who are helping to bring master's students, PhD students through your projects and building relationships and learning things which can be useful to you as you move on. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot going on inside the companies that's often not really publicized. Um, So there's a lot of internal research going on that the public doesn't really know about. Right. 
So why why did you become a geochemist? <laughs> so um, so originally I'm from Germany, from Munich in Germany, and I guess chemistry, geology was something I was always interested in already when, when I was going to school, and decided uh, geology was just the more exciting bit rather than just standing in, in the lab. But I, I still had that that passion for for chemistry, and and so this is how I initially got into in isotope geochemistry and, and and geochemistry. But my real passion was really always that the exploration and the, the project generation. So th- through the geochemistry, I got into the mining exploration industry and, and through that had the exposure. And, and so I ended up in my in my current role, which is more focused on the mineral system and the project generation aspect of yeah. it, sort of the more holistic view of it. But I, I still have have great passion for, for geochemistry, obviously. Yeah. So the interest in uh, this big multidisciplinary project, Amos, is, and the fact that they're bringing petrologists and other researchers together that don't normally think about processes in economic geology, let alone porphyry copper deposits. And that has had its own benefits. But the the third piece was industry's interest. And why is industry participating in this basic fundamental yeah, research? Yeah. And and you're not the only company involved. So it's not just unique to Anglo-American. So FAMAS, um, so we were at the time when the first ideas of FAMAS were discussed, that was around in the summer, uh, northern hemisphere summer of, of 2016. And at that time already, we had for a number of years a collaboration with the Natural History Museum with Jamie Wilkinson. So Jamie had approached Anglo at, at the time and invited us to be an, an industry partner in the project. And I, I guess we were sort of really, we welcomed that, that invitation and were really interested in participating for a, for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, porphyry copper deposits are yeah, one, one of our major economic interests to Anglos. It's uh, our copper production and, and also a large part of our exploration portfolio. And there's still a lot of fundamental aspects that we don't really fully understand about the, the porphyry copper mineral systems. So I think this is why we were interested in a sort of a fundamental research project like that. And what was really interesting about FAMAS from our side was, and it's somewhat different from other collaborative projects we've been involved in in the past, that FAMAS was really sort of a holistic assessment of the whole free mineral system. So from the mantle source to the site of copper deposition. So it wasn't really focusing on, on specific processes or aspects, but a, a real holistic assessment. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it was really what was also unique, bringing together this multidisciplinary team of world-class researchers. And from like igneous petrologists to numerical modelers to volcanologists to economic geologists as well, geochemists. And I still remember the, the very first meeting I, I attended, and it was a, a very vibrant and, and inspiring atmosphere, I thought. And it was always, I think it was definitely a little bit like herding cats, because as you said, people who had n- not been involved in any sort of economic geology research, who also didn't really understand the needs of, of industry at, at all and had worked in their own little niches. But it was definitely a very, a very inspiring environment to be yeah. in. So, so yeah. we, we clearly saw that as an opportunity to tackle those sort of fundamental 
questions around the porphyry copper mineral system that we, we didn't really fully understand. Right. So is understanding those fundamental aspects of porphyry that we don't understand yet really going to help you find more copper? Well, may, maybe not that directly, but the way we look at it is always there's sort of two main aspects to research. And the, the, the one is obviously developing the tools and the workflows that we apply in day-to-day exploration, that's obviously more immediate. But on the other hand, it's also really the fundamental understanding that really improves our our predictive capabilities. So at the end of the day, and and my feeling is that this sort of fundamental understanding and our uh, improving our predictive capabilities is getting more and more important as exploration and discovery of of superior value or systems becomes increasingly challenging. So, So I think it is definitely something we need to pay more attention to and, and which we do. So you, you're participating, but you're not only just showing up to the meetings, Anglo-American actually provided a data set to, to the project. Yeah. So can you just speak briefly about why you would provide data to the, yeah. the researchers? I, I guess it was from the start, it was clear when, when we first were talking to Jamie Wilkins, the FAMIS project was primarily NERC funded. So it was quite well funded. So it was a project that didn't seek financial support from industry, but definitely in-kind support from industry and also provision of, of study sites and so on. So it was clear to us from the start that we would need to bring something to the table. And so we decided to provide the Los Bronces district in the Miocene belt of central Chile as a study site to the project. So along with that, we obviously also provided some in-house geological information and geochemical data but it was not so much the data set that we provided, but the district as a, as, a, as a study site. So this is something we decided early on. And that was also, was to some extent, also a requirement of, of the initial application that the consortium submitted to actually have a, a study site of that type. And we had at the time and over the years, we'd done quite a bit of exploration in the Los Bronces district. And through that, we we collected several thousand lithogy chemical data over the years. And we had a pretty good understanding of the geological and metallogenic evolution of the district. So we knew that this would be a really good study site. So not only is it one of the most endowed porphyry copper clusters in in the world, but it's also like in the district, you've got 15 to 20 million year history of magmatic evolution that goes from the early switch from volcanic activity to intrusive activity. You then have the amalgamation of the San Francisco batholith over over a period of several million years. You've got hydrothermal activity episodically throughout that period. And you then have the rapid switch to a fertile productive porphyry system at at around eight to nine million years. So that you had all of that going on in the one district, and we felt this would be really an excellent study site. And and I guess we also understood from previous projects we've been involved in that the quality of the research outcomes depends to a large extent also on the quality of the study site. So so we felt that we had a vested interest in in providing a good site. So so that was sort of our our thinking there. And obviously we couldn't provide all of the data that we had to the project, but we, as I said, we provided some of the data and also a lot of our insights and our understanding of the, so we could really direct the FAMIS team, the sampling towards sort of the, really the critical stages 
in the evolution of the system. Yeah. That's key. I mean, that's years of work that accelerates what FAMOS is doing. Absolutely. So there's two two other things for me that in what you described there that are, I think, hugely important. One is the district scale, which we don't often look at. Yeah. There's so many deposit scale studies. We don't see that whole evolution of, of clusters. And the second is the volume of data which we also in academia don't see very often because who can take several thousand or multiple thousands of you know geochemical or hyperspec whatever the data is we don't see the volume so those those two things mean without knowing anything else that is a hugely valuable data set yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and and i think if we could be making a pitch to the rest of the industry is the more of those data sets that are used in collaboration with our very bright good researchers who through no fault of their own don't have these data sets we might yeah. we might make some progress absolutely yeah and it, it is really like as you as you said you, you can't stress it enough it is looking at the district scale and the volume of that data. This is really what unlocked so much in our understanding that what we did not really anticipate. So you, you can't stress that enough, absolutely. Many thanks to Jenny Wilkinson, Elena Melikova, and Christian Eilenfeld for providing your insights into the magmatic processes that can lead to porphyry deposits and how multidisciplinary collaborative research can advance our understanding. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll explore the epithermal environment and its connection to deeper magmatic hydrothermal systems with guests Richard Silito, John Thompson, Chris Muller from K92, and Dave Reese. It's going to be great. I'm Ann Thompson your host and producer. All the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. For information on new releases, be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot Discoveries on their social media channels. This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Blumel, Hallie Keeble, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time.